Welcome to episode 44, The Truth About the Federalist Papers, part 2. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you are on Facebook or Twitter and the subjects such as the Federalist Papers, Julian Assange, prayer, vaping, billionaires, or the Supreme Court comes up, please share the TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for that link. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. In the last episode, I introduced or reintroduced you to the Federalist Papers. We discussed some of the nuts and bolts concepts, such as the need to replace the Articles of Confederation in order to usher in a strong centralized government. In this episode, we will discuss the checks and balances built into the Constitution, and in the next episode, we will talk about other issues addressed in the essays. So let's talk about the House, the Senate, and the Presidency. In Federalist 39, James Madison conveniently provides the groundwork for this episode as he walks through the particulars of how the House members are elected directly by the people versus the Senate by the state legislatures and the President indirectly through representatives of the people in the Electoral College. In Federalist 47, Madison continues by explaining the power has been distributed carefully among the three branches of government. He argues that the federal system will in fact provide for more independence among the branches than the current state constitutions do. He continues this line of argument in Federalist 51, where he explains in more detail the checks and balances created in the Constitution. This essay contains the famous Madison quote, If men were angels, no government would be necessary, and if angels were to govern men, then neither external nor internal controls of government would be necessary. Harking back to episode 43, the reason for government is because men are not angels. And as we very well know, angels certainly do not govern us. It seems to be the exact opposite. Madison explains that because the legislative branch is the most powerful, the method of election of the two branches were purposely differentiated. The House be by popular vote, and the Senate appointment by state legislatures. Madison again points out that the states are protected by the three branches. He explains how the construct of the Constitution protects the minorities from being oppressed by the majority, as is easily the case in pure democracies. As we discussed in episode 43, the Republican form of government makes oppression more difficult. As Federalist 10 points out, a republic is more capable of controlling the effects of factions than a democracy. Why is that? Because we cede decision-making to an elected official while maintaining ultimate authority at the ballot box. As a side note, despite what progressives and national democrats will have you believe, America's diversity makes it very difficult for minorities to be oppressed, not easier. There are too many factions to form an overwhelming majority. In Federalist 56, he argues that the federal government's main responsibility will be commerce, the militia, and taxation. Speaking of Congress and their duties, Madison essentially says that the states have plenty of stuff to do, leaving very little for Congress to do outside of reviewing and condensing some of the -the run-of-the-mill tax and commercial regulations where appropriate. 
He also considers the fact that most members of Congress will have at one time or another served in the state legislature, thereby preserving the state's interest in the federal legislature. This is another example of where the founders got things wrong. These days, Congress has its fingers in so many aspects of our lives outside their constitutional mandate that it should make your head hurt. So let's jump into the House of Representatives in more detail. In Federalists 52, 53, and 55, James Madison tackles the nuts and bolts of the House. Two issues are considered, their qualifications for representatives and their term of office. The qualifications for the members is 25 years of age, 7 years a citizen of the U.S., live in the state he represents, and hold no other office. The term of office is, as you're likely familiar, is biannual elections. The reason for such frequent elections is to keep this branch of government dependent on the people. If you have to face your constituents every two years, you better do their bidding. Madison goes on to explain that the House of Representatives will be comprised of one member per 30,000 inhabitants. So initially there would be 65 representatives, which would grow to 100 in 10 years, and would grow to 200 in 25 years, and likely based on population projections close to 400 in 50 years, all along maintaining the one representative per 30,000 inhabitants. Here again, we will see how progressives have worked to undermine the Constitution. In Federalist 57, Madison explains that frequent elections of the House of Representatives will ensure the honest character of politicians whose performance will be based on meritocracy and not their class or position in society. Given the current crop of House members that resembles the Star Wars bar scene, this essay presents modern readers with a little bit of humor. In Federalist 58, Madison discusses the future augmentations of the number of representatives. Despite our Republican lowercase r inclinations, citizens must have direct representation so that their voices can be heard. This is why it is so vital for the House of Representatives to grow as the population grows. As you can see, the idea was to readjust the size of the House from time to time, from census to census, otherwise known as apportionment of representatives. The problem is, in 1929, Congress passed the Permanent Apportionment Act that permanently limits the number of representatives to 435. So today, instead of having one congressman for every 30,000 citizens, they now represent upwards of 700,000 people. Which scenario do you think a congressman is more receptive to his con constituents? This is so out of whack with the original intent of the Constitution, no fair-minded person could argue otherwise. So if you are likely wondering, how many members of Congress would there be today if we stuck with the 30,000 rule? The answer is about 11,000 members of Congress. Skeptics argue that nothing would ever get done if we had that many members of Congress. Maybe, maybe not. What if it did? Would that be a bad thing? Do we need more or less federal involvement in our lives? I mean, seriously, folks, the technology exists to allow for a remote voting. There's no need to go to D.C. and be subject to lobbyists and all the other shenanigans that goes on in that town. They could stay home and spend time with their constituents, or better yet, go to work and serve as a congressman. If you want more on this topic, check out 30,000.org. So the question becomes, why are there so many scoundrels walking in the halls of Congress? Why do these incompetent people have a close to a 90% re-election rate? Part of it is gerrymandering. The other is money and politics. Money and power. One of the strongest arguments made by Madison in this essay is the fact that whatever laws Congress passes will also apply to themselves. So they, of course, would never pass any laws that would be harmful to themselves. 
Over the years, there's been plenty of areas of life where Congress skirted this rule, like voting themselves pay raises, exempting themselves from Social Security, which did end in 1984. The numerous exemptions they carved out for themselves from Obamacare was a direct slap in the face for the rest of us. Insider trading is the most recent phenomenon that has allowed Congress to trade stocks in companies in which their committees are involved in regulating. Prior to that, we had the House Post Office scandal in the 1990s, where members of Congress were literally writing and cashing fraudulent checks. All of this is emblematic of how members of Congress use their place in society to their benefit, knowing that they make the rules. Fewer places exemplify the axiom, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, more than the United States Congress. If trouble were to arise in one of the three branches of government as defined by the Constitution, this would be it. But they've developed the frequent elections as a way to quell this part of human nature. I contend that if Congress, whether Republican or Democrat dominated, did their job as prescribed in the Constitution, actively invoking the power of the purse, which they rarely do, this country would be on a much better footing. Instead, they sit up there and ignore bad, overreaching, and unconstitutional behavior on the part of the President and the Supreme Court. When their guy's in the White House, there's nothing to be seen. And when their majority is in the Supreme Court, again, nothing to see here. This is another example of party over principle. To round out the discussion of the House, we will briefly look at Federalist 54, where Madison explains the three-fifths compromise. He explains the rationale for Article 1, Section 2, counting only three-fifths of the total number of slaves in a state when determining the number of representatives in the House of Representatives for that state. He explains that the three-fifths of the total number of slaves is a compromise number, and the clue to the compromise comes from the first part of the clause, namely, quote, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, end quote. So what does that mean? It means that if Southern states counted all their slaves, their representation in Congress would increase, but so would their share of the government's tax burden. Northern states argued if slaves are property, they should be counted in estimates of taxation, which are founded on property, but excluded, of course, from representation based on the census. So as you can see, there was a real issue here. This was resolved in the Constitution so that the Southern states would ratify it. As we move on to our discussion on the Senate, I want you to file this brief discussion on the Three-Fifths Compromise away for future reference. Pull it out the next time you hear someone misrepresenting this compromise on racist terms. Now let's turn our attention to the Senate. In Federalists 62 and 63, Madison provides a general overview. So while the House represents the people directly, the newly formed Union needed additional checks and balances and buffers against corruption. The Senate, with its longer terms in office, an appointment by state legislatures. So I'm going to pause right here because I've mentioned this now three times. I'm willing to bet that many of you did not know that the Constitution provided that the senators were appointed by the state legislatures. I mean, all you know is that every four years, a certain percentage of senators are running for re-election, and you are subjected to endless campaign advertisements on TV, social media, and on the radio. The founders gave us a system where the United States senators were appointed by the state legislatures. We will dive into this shortly. So again, with their longer terms in office, an appointment by the state legislature, and acting in essence as ambassadors of their state to Washington, not unlike ambassadors from foreign countries, these people would be less susceptible to public opinion and the vacillating emotions of the electorate. They will be more deliberative and reasonable in their legislative approach. 
The Senate also protects the smaller states because unlike the House where members are assigned based on the state's population, every state gets equal footing in the Senate, two senators per state. Do you think the smaller states would have ratified the Constitution without this provision? Furthermore, think about the genius of the lengths of terms in office amongst the, three bran- the two branches of government. The Senate is, by design, the more stable part of government. Six-year terms versus four-year terms versus two-year terms. This explains why all those old bags in the Senate oftentimes ignore whoever is president at the time. They know they will be there long after he's gone. The Senate was to be a stabilizing force, not only in the government, but also in the business community. Farmers, businessmen, and entrepreneurs require stability in order to go out, take risks, invest, hire, and build businesses. This is the essay where the, with the famous quote by Madison that says, It will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice if the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read or so incoherent that they cannot be understood. What do we deal with today from Washington? Exactly that, voluminous omnibus bills that no one reads. We get a nationalized health care law written in such a way that then-Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi told the American people with a straight face, which isn't saying much given who we're talking about, you have to pass the bill to see what's in it. Or Democratic Congressman John Conyers' response to the question, did you read the Obamacare bill before voting for it? He said, I love these members. They get up and say, read the bill. What good is reading the bill if it's a thousand pages and you don't have two days and two lawyers to find out what it means after you read the bill? So I just voted to further upend the healthcare industry in the U.S. It's like the scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz. If I only had a brain. As I mentioned, senators were to be considered ambassadors to the states in Washington. They were there to protect the states from an overreaching federal government. And if a senator did not do his job in representing the states, the state legislatures would simply recall and replace him with someone that would. In my opinion, the passage of the 17th Amendment is by far the most damaging policy of the progressive era. This amendment calls for the direct election of senators, taking away one of the most fundamental power-restricting tools in the Constitution's toolbox, one of the most fundamental states' rights provisions. Just wiped it out. It's another example of chipping away at our constitutional protections. Do you think for one minute that a law like Obamacare would have passed the Senate if its members were ambassadors to the states, where the majority of people opposed the law? Hell no. For proof of my hypothesis, Go research the names of all the Democratic senators that voted for Obamacare. How many of them lost their next re-election campaign or chose not to run because they knew they were going to lose? In Federalist 64, John Jay discusses the power given to the president to make treaties, of course with the advice and consent of the Senate. This very important power, which relates to war, peace, and commerce, ties a bow on much of the checks and balances. Think about it. The president chosen by a select body of electors, and the Senate, appointed by the state legislatures, must work together when dealing with big issues. Finally, in Federalists 65 and 66, Hamilton explains the powers of the Senate during impeachment trials. Okay, last but not least, we have to look at the presidency. So not surprising, Alexander Hamilton does the heavy lifting in Essays 67 through 76 regarding the executive branch. He was by far the most ardent supporter of a strong executive of the Founding Fathers. When you hear stories about the people wanting to make George Washington a king, Hamilton was at the front of the cheering section. In Federalist 68, he discusses the appointment of the president. Okay, so did you catch that? 
the appointment of the president, not the election of the president. Just like senators were appointed by the state legislature, the president is appointed by electors from the Electoral College. Please listen to episode 34 for an in-depth look at the Electoral College. Hamilton argues this system of electing the president is one of the most effective ways to preserve the American Republic. The presence of independent group of electors will protect the presidency from special interests and ensure that all citizens, even those who live in small or isolated areas, are proportionally represented. Hamilton makes the erroneous claim that with moral certainty, the presidency will seldom be occupied by anyone who is not eminently qualified. He said men of superior ability and virtue would reside in the office. When he wrote those words, he probably was thinking of George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson. Not Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, JFK, and Woodrow Wilson. But you also mustn't remember that the founders assumed that the electorate would be fully engaged and thus sniff out scoundrels. Obviously, modern America has proved them wrong. In Federalist 69, Hamilton compares the president with the king of Great Britain and the governor of New York. He explains that the president will be the top executive of the nation and the commander-in-chief of our armed forces, but his powers will be clearly defined and limited. He goes on to explain that the declaration of war resides with the British king, as does the raising of fleets and armies. Not so under the new American Constitution. In addition to pointing out that the president of the U.S. has less power than the British king, Hamilton goes so far as to say he has less power than the governor of New York, citing a series of powers that the New York Constitution grants the governor. In Federalist 71, Hamilton discusses the length of the president's term in office. Hamilton's overall message is, no more kings. Though a nation needs an executive who can act independently of the other branches, the president must be, at the same time, both accountable to the people and a leader of men. The best way to create this balance was with a four-year term. He follows that up with Essay 72, where he explains why there are no limits on the number of terms a president can serve. He argues that the nature of the job requires experience. You've know, you got foreign affairs, dealing with the army and navy, and war, all require duration in office. He goes on to make the claim that term limits would only lead to ill effects like taking advantage of the position for financial gain and avoiding having to placate various constituencies. In other words, less concern with dealing with re-election. One interesting footnote to this provision of the Constitution is the passage of the 22nd Amendment six years after Franklin Roosevelt's death as he served out his fourth term in office. This amendment, of course, limits the president to two terms in office. I guess the American people thought FDR got too close to being a king. Hamilton closes out his discussion on the presidency with essays 73 through 76 with a discussion about the president's salary, veto power, his responsibility as commander-in-chief of the armed forces, his power to pardon, how treaties are handled with advice and consent of the Senate, and the president's power to nominate and appoint ambassadors, public ministers, Supreme Court justices, and various other officials, again with the advice and consent of the Senate. So in this episode, we examine the Federalist Papers associated with two of the three branches of government, the legislative and executive branches. All of this is knowledge worthy of pursuing and understanding, but after going through most of the Federalist Papers, we can arrive at a couple of conclusions. Number one, the United States Constitutional is a remarkable document. Number two, progressives have done permanent damage to the Republic over the last hundred years, just chipping away at the protections afforded in the document. Think about just what we discuss in this episode, the Permanent Apportionment Act of 1929 and the 17th Amendment. 
In the last episode, we talked about how the federal government has leaned towards tearing down religious freedom, the lack of declaration of wars by Congress, as one president after another gets us involved in unnecessary and unconstitutional wars. We talked about the doling out of unconstitutional welfare benefits, their interference in the economy, getting involved in our children's education, looking at the Supreme Court on a regular basis declaring unconstitutional rights out of thin air with no backlash from Congress or the states, and most recently, Democratic presidential aspirants calling for the abolishment of the Electoral College. Cast a broader net and the list becomes depressingly long. Think about the ramifications of the 16th Amendment, the income tax, or Social Security, or the New Deal, or presidential executive orders and signing statements. What about threats to pack the Supreme Court and the dramatic expansion of the unelected, unaccountable, bureaucratic, and regulatory state? It's really out of control. We have got some serious foundational problems largely caused by the various cracks in the constitutional armor caused by progressives. Mix that up with Congress's abdication of many of their constitutional duties, along with the expansion of the regulatory state in which feeds the vast lobbyist state. Less money and less power in D.C. equals less need to lobby for that money and that power. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Thank you.